Hello and welcome to today's Unpacked podcast. I'm Charlie Pickles. I am joined by Peter Franklin. Hello. And I'm also joined by Sally Chatterton. Hello. Welcome. So today we are talking about classrooms and the Unpacked that we are discussing is called the ideological battle over classroom seating arrangements, which may seem like a sort of, you know, perhaps a little bit of a trivial topic, but as always, Peter has managed to uncover a whole world of other issues that this represents. So Peter, why are we talking about classrooms? Well, this is um, based on a blog on the teacher head website by Tom Sherrington. And he talks about the, this battle over how to arrange desks in a classroom. And if you remember... So we're, we're literally talking seating plans here. That's right. You know, in some classrooms, um, it's all in rows. In others, they might be sort of in groups. And I can remember from my own distant school days that we'd always prefer the classrooms where they were in groups because you can muck around more because... The teacher couldn't see as well. How irresponsible, well, I know, Peter. It was so easy to do. Uh, when you were cl- in clusters, you see, you were sort of, um, sort of lock it, almost Hidden locking out away, the yes. teacher. Yes. Okay, and so why is it important then that actually uh, children are seated facing the front, looking at the teacher? Well, as oh, yes, well, I mean. Because, well, my thought is that surely that's exactly as it should be because it, 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 there's a hierarchy that it gives rise to. The teacher is the teacher, the teacher is teaching, and the students are there to study. So I don't understand why there's a problem. Well, some people see hierarchy as necessarily a bad thing, right? And they view the idea of the teacher dominating the pupils as being oppressive and um the but teaching well people. exactly and as tom there, there are a few yes. eye rolls here as, uh, as <laughs> yes. we hear this <laughs> well indeed and um but you know the, the idea is that it's more human to have everyone clustered and being all friendly and mucking around mucking around which is what actually happens but as tom sherrington points out is that the teacher needs to see the faces he needs to see who's got the point that he's trying to teach who's going to need more help and yeah who might be mucking about um but for you know discipline reasons but much more importantly for educational reasons you need to have that face-to-face contact and far from being inhuman and dickensian the desks in rows is actually facilitating the crucial relationship which is between each child and the teacher and it also beds in doesn't it the relationships and registers that children need to use in, li- in life to come, doesn't it? That you know, there are certain modes of appropriate um, conversation that you use with the teacher, uh, and the hierarchy of relationships. So it sort of establishes that, bakes and it in for need, yeah. And you do what need happens. to listen, and you do need to sit still, and you do need to recognise that you know, in the workplace, for example, there will be managers that you have to relate to in a certain way, and so having those formal structures and experiencing them as children does contribute to then how you're able to engage in you know the future world exactly. of work it's part of the learning to. experience it's not yeah. just about you know oh. the learning to right P- peter wants to oh, oh. P- peter wants to <coughs> disagree <laughs> well no no i just want to point out that if if you have been um catechized um by postmodern theory then everything all structures have to be 
um, seen as power relationships. It's oppressive. Right. Okay, so so fine. Are there then other examples uh, where this kind of worldview is being applied? Well, the one I can think of especially is architecture. If you think about traditional buildings, especially you know, uh, traditional buildings in a sort of prominent uh, setting, um, perhaps a Victorian city hall, um, they have grand entrances, you know, you have steps sweeping up, you have porticos, you have pillars, you have all of that. And apparently some people view that as kind of oppressive and um, too grand. Um, so is that because there's a side inhuman? entrance as well? For well, the... this, this is it. It's, uh, there'll be the tradesman's entrance right. and, um, and such like. And so modern architecture, modern buildings, often the, you know, if you, if, how many times, if you've ever been to the South Bank buildings in London, for instance, you can spend ages just trying to find the door, how yeah. to get in. Because, <laughs> and how to get out. Yeah. Because, you know, not having a grand... Um, entrance is supposed to be more human it's supposed to be you know less intimidating oh, well, yes you wouldn't want to upset anyone would we so i mean I, I think this is fascinating this idea that in some way you know people are going to be intimidated mm. by you know this kind of impressive sort of victorian uh, entryway mm. and you know it, it does strike me that that taking that sort of position is very patronizing ultimately and, and I can remember when I was at university and, and going to a, a student union discussion about so so uh, I went to Oxford you have to wear something called subfusk which is essentially a kind of uniform uh, that you wear to go to uh, your exams and some dinners and you know kind of things like that it's part of the tradition um, and I can remember being at this student union meeting and they were seriously debating the fact that people from, quotes, ordinary backgrounds, and by that they really meant from comprehensive schools, uh, would be put off and actively not apply to Oxford University because of having to wear subfusk. And I sat in the audience, and as someone who, ha who attended a comprehensive school, I just thought this was absolutely unbelievable mm. that this kind of, you know, paternalistic view of, you know, all oh, those, you know, slightly kind of stupid people who aren't going to be able to see past tradition. Mm, exactly. It's deeply offensive, isn't it, in many ways, someone actually so, yeah. taking offence on your behalf. And so, I mean, there's, there's that issue then around um, this kind of what, what I think there's sort of a consensus here at this uh, table is a slightly remarkable, uh, if not downright stupid view that, you know, we should we should kind of throw off all of history's experience about, yes. you know, what, why certain things work. Um, but, I mean, Peter, is this just a natural evolution? You know, it, it, or, or are we kind of forgetting that it's not, you know, there are, there are genuine reasons why certain things are, you know, why classrooms are, are set up in certain ways. Well, they've stood the test of time. And, you know, the word traditional is, is used often pejoratively to mean kind of fusty and inflexible and things like that. But um, actually what it is, is accumulation of lived experience. And the idea that someone can come along with a head full of very recent theory and say, we're gonna deconstruct all of this. Well, actually they are privileging 
themselves, their own incredibly short experience, most of which is theoretical, not practical, mm. and actually saying, we're going to sweep away, you know, decades, perhaps centuries of other people's wisdom. You know, how oppressive and hierarchical is that? I mean, to me, and that, that, that to me is, you know, talk about postmodern irony. It's, you know, that's a real power trip that's going on here. Well, as ever, uh, a fascinating discussion. Uh, Peter Franklin ending there with tearing apart uh, the arguments of the uh, postmodernists. Um, thank you so much for listening to us, as always. Um, thank you, Peter and Sally, obviously, and also James Coney, who is our producer. Please do subscribe, uh, if you haven't already, um, on whichever the app is that you get your podcasts from. Um, and we hope that you tune in for our next one. <laughs>